What would you say to those who argue, well, the reason Marin County doesn't want affordable housing and specifically housing subsidized for lower income residents is related to maybe they don't want people of color living there? Well, see, I think, I mean, people often bring that up saying, you know, that it's discriminatory in that kind of negative way. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing reporter with CalMatters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times, uh, now in Los Angeles. It is Wednesday, October 16th. Um, what is the weather like in beautiful Los Angeles, California? 75 and sunny, man. Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah. In December, you'll get to wear sandals. Are you a socks and sandals guy? I feel like you're a socks and sandals guy. I'm actually not really a sandals guy. Huh. This is, this is, this is from Even a, with you all know, the time from, in from, San Diego? From, no, this is from like, you know, uh, Some traumatic 20, childhood experience. 23 years of living in the Northeast from when I was born to when I uh, exited. Um, and so, yeah, it just there's some habits die hard. One is not not really wearing sandals. Close toed shoes. Well, I look forward when I actually see you to seeing you in like a hookah shell necklace or whatever it's called and sandals. And um, what's the what's the shirt with the buttons? And Hardy? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm not that mean. I, w- I wouldn't <laughs> say you wear Ed Hardy. So for our first remote podcast, uh, we have the perfect topic. It is the case for local control. Yes. So uh, housing, are basically our entire reason for existence, um, has been <laughs> centered on uh, who handles housing best, state or localities, and the tensions between them. Uh, and here we're going to talk uh, a lot from the local perspective. Um, so, yes, we are giving a platform exclusively this time to advocates for local control. And who are our perfect guests this fortnight? So we have both Northern California and Southern California well represented. From Northern California, we have Susan Kirch, who's the founder and former president of Livable California, a kind of group of neighborhood activists uh, that started in the Bay Area uh, and is uh, now up and down the state. And then uh, for SoCal, we have Juan Garza. He's a city councilman in the city of Bellflower. Uh, we want to thank everyone who came out to our live podcast event a few weeks back in San Francisco. That was fun. What would you think of it? It was a lot of fun, and we had a really nice uh, turnout. And, we did. Uh, and uh, and it, it, I think it translated well to the audio, too. So that's always a plus uh, for those who weren't, weren't able to make it. Yes. And the good news is that uh, we're on tour, man. It's I know. Like, it, it's like we're like, I don't we know, need a bus. Bob Dylan or something. Mm, yeah, I would you say know? given – our ages and our deteriorating, the deteriorating quality of what we do. I'd say we'd more like yeah. the Rolling Stones. Just we're just okay. we're out there all the time, whether people want us or not. I'm especially Keith. given the name of the podcast. It seems to link. Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, I can't. Yes, yes. should have said Rolling Stones to start with. Yes. Yep. Nah, I was on that. Uh, we are all over the place talking about housing over the next few weeks, and we're gonna read some tour dates. This is. Yes. I feel like Mark Marin. This is amazing. <laughs> Um, next Friday, October 25th, we will be in downtown Los Angeles at the Marriott for the Southern California Association of Nonprofit Housing's annual conference. And this one is going to be fun. What are, what are we doing there? 
Yeah, we have two guests uh, who, uh, speaking of state and local relationship, uh, don't see eye to eye on that. Uh, we have Senator Scott Weiner from San Francisco, who has introduced a number of the uh, bills over the years to um, uh, allow for more state state control over yeah. housing decisions. Uh, and then uh, the counterpart is Beverly Hills Mayor John Mirish, who uh, at many times very colorfully uh, has argued for uh, more local control over these decisions. We will be taping that and it, we will um, put it out on the podcast at some point, probably the next episode, but I, I won't guarantee yeah. that just yet. Then the day afterwards, we hop in um, the tour bus and we head to San Diego the, and the, just to be clear, the tour bus is my Honda Civic. So <laughs> yeah, what year? Oh man, it's an 05. Nice, classic, yeah. classic. Uh, yeah, and I'll be in the back seat. I'm assuming. No, no, it's just gonna be you and me going oh, the way down. It is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I will still be in the back seat. I prefer <laughs> to to think of this as like a Lyft Uber situation. I do tip, so. That's good. That's good. Uh, Saturday, October 26th, Voice of San Diego's PolitiFest in at the University of San Diego campus, I believe. That's correct. Uh, and this will be uh, yet another live recording of Gimme Shelter. Um, and who do we have on that podcast? So we're going to try to tell folks about kind of uh, some of the history of of, uh, of this housing drama over the past few years yep. and, and the state's role in that. And we have two good guests, again, kind of pulling at the state state versus local control um, concerns. We have uh, State Assemblyman uh, Todd Gloria, a, a Democrat from San Diego who is also running for um, mayor in that city in 2020. And then uh, Catherine Blakespear. She is the mayor of Encinitas, which uh, until recently yes. was the only state— only city of any reasonable size in the state never to have had an approved uh, state housing plan, yes. state zoning plan. And now uh, now they, in fact, do. Anyway, if you're in San Diego, come out. Um, we'd love to see you there, um, especially if you missed the San Francisco podcast. And then one more. God willing, we survive these. One more. <laughs> um, Tuesday, November 5th at the Milken Institute in Santa Monica, we'll be talking about homelessness and housing uh, with a bunch of people, including um, some of my other favorite L.A. Times reporters. You want to give your colleagues a shout out? Yeah. So uh, Benjamin Oreskes, who uh, is He's covering uh, homelessness st- st- statewide for us. Um, and also uh, my uh, new editor, um, Erica Smith, who used to be a columnist with the Sacramento Bee. Um, and she kind of responsible for uh, much of our uh, homelessness and housing coverage. Liam and I will be interviewing Mark Ridley Thomas, uh, L.A. County Supervisor, and Daryl Steinberg, friend of the podcast, mayor of Sacramento, who are the co-chairs of Governor Newsom's task force on homelessness. Again, a reminder, with Liam moving down to L.A., things are not touch and go, but we're kind of exploring how feasible it is for us to do this. We both still really want to do the podcast. Um, It always helps to hear feedback, good and bad, but preferably good. Um, If you like the podcast and want to hear us in the future, rate and review us on iTunes. That's probably the best thing you could do. Or subscribe to the LA Times, donate to Cal Matters, and uh, let let them know either on social media um, or in a more direct way that you're doing so because you like what we do here. Okay. Next time you do the solicitation. I feel like I'm always Uh, doing the solicitation. Okay. I'm happy happy to do that. Yes, I'm sure you are. And now, finally, uh, back to the most popular segment in all of California housing podcastery. It is Avocado of the Fortnite. Our look at the most absurd California housing story of the past two weeks, in this case, basically the past month since we've last had a 
avocado. Uh, this avocado takes us to the Clinton Park neighborhood of San Francisco. It was a avocado that made national news. Uh, As things in San Francisco are wont to do. But this one was particularly symbolic in a um, like Greek mythology, mythological yeah. way. Yeah, literally Sisyphean. So what we're referring to is a story that you've probably already heard of. In this Clinton Park neighborhood, there were people who were sleeping on the streets, people experiencing homelessness. That had been around actually for a little bit. It kind of escalated. So according to the San Francisco Chronicle, since the start of the year, neighbors called 311 and 911 hundreds of times detailing scenes of round-the-clock drug use, needles scattered on the sidewalk, and inebriated homeless people cooking on open flames and raucously partying late into the night. So the situation was getting worse. The neighbors uh, do what, I guess, what is the go-to option now for, um, I don't know, a a neighborhood association trying to uh, deal with uh, any type of homelessness issue, which is to launch a GoFundMe. Uh, oh, there was a GoFundMe for this too. Yeah, Man. yeah, there was oh, wow. there was reportedly a GoFundMe. They raised about two grand. Uh, Brandon, that what did they buy? They bought boulders, baby. They bought <laughs> huge boulders um, and put them on the sidewalk so that people experiencing homelessness could not use the sidewalk anymore. And this was they actually did not invent the idea themselves. This was actually no. an idea called hostile architecture, which uh, oh. arguably is being increasingly deployed around San Francisco, sometimes with boulders, sometimes with park benches that are shaped in a way that you can't sleep on them, yeah. with spiky planters. So this was not an original idea. Um, some uh, advocates for people experiencing homelessness were very upset by this, um, shame some of the people, uh, Clinton Park residents, who were involved in procuring the boulders on social media. So they were rolling. There was like a, a dueling boulder experience. The boulders would go on, and the activists would roll them off, and then they'd be rolling the boulders back. Just a lot of like, I just had this image in my mind of just like people, you know, kind of like uh, uh, roll out these giant Sisyphean, if you will, yes. um, efforts to to move rocks on and off this side. There was a lot of symbolism there. So the end result of this is the residents finally relented and said, you know what, this isn't worth it. Um, city, please take away the boulders. The city was actually going to let them keep the boulders there if they wanted to, which I found interesting. Uh, So as it currently stands, a lot of the people, the encampments that were there um, aren't there anymore. The San Francisco Chronicle, there's some good reporting by Kevin Fagan. It was either him or his colleague that shared the byline, uh, interviewed a drug dealer um, who was previously operating near this Clinton Park neighborhood, and that drug dealer said, yeah, now that things have died down, I'll probably uh, work my way back in there. Uh, It is possible to have empathy for both the residents who, you know, had tales of people on methamphetamine coming up to them and accosting them while they tried to get into their house, um, and also the people who are sleeping on the street themselves. And once you displace them, where else are they going to go? I mean, there are no, there's no winners. No. Yeah. No, there there really aren't. Yeah. Now let's move on to the bills that Governor Newsom signed and vetoed. October 13th uh, was the deadline for Newsom to sign a bill into law. Um, Some very important housing bills were signed. Some very important housing bills were vetoed. Uh, Let's start with uh, the rent cap bill, both you and I were in attendance for the signing ceremony. Paint Paint us a picture of what the signing ceremony was like. 
Yeah, so we were in a senior center in West Oakland. Um, very full, pretty raucous for a signing ceremony, um, more so than yeah. I've been to in 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 the past. Filled with uh, uh, um, representatives of the Alliance of Californians for Community Empowerment, um, which was a principal supporter ACE of the rent cap bill. And again, uh, for context, the the bill limits um, rent increases, annual rent increases in the state to five percent plus inflation for the next decade. So it would vary kind of by region, right? Um, but we're talking many anywhere between eight, eight to 10 percent typically. Right. Yep. Um, and and so, uh, you know, pretty, pretty happy event uh, for, for folks there. And I think part of that comes from the fact that this kind of tenant legislation is something that was very difficult um, to pass in California. And there was finally something that was kind of put on the board that added a level of protection for renters, um, you know, millions of renters now that didn't have it before. So in this jubilant atmosphere, I was the Debbie Downer. So I've been in contact with the Fresno, basically the Fresno Central Valley equivalent of legal aid for a while for a separate story I'm doing. Um, and you had seen these anecdotal reports of uh, no cause evictions. Um, so a landlord saying, here's 60 day notice. I don't have to tell you why I don't want you in my property. You're gone after 60 days, which they can legally do um, in most parts of the state now. And that's something that the bill um, ends that practice. Uh, that's the just cause eviction protection starting January 1st. But I had seen right. on Twitter there was these little crackles of like, mostly from tenants advocates, hey, we're hearing that this complex, a bunch of people just got uh, no cause evicted. Hey, my friend just got no cause evicted. The landlord said that it's because of this rent cap law. And so I checked in with the legal aid organization in Central California. I was like, hey, have you heard anything about this? And they said, yeah, we had heard that um, over 30 families had just got e no cause evicted in Los, in Los Banos. The reason that this is happening is because there is a temporary loophole in the law uh, based on how it is, when it is going to go into effect, right? So because the, the just cause pr protections that force a landlord to list a specific reason for why they want to evict you, um, don't go into effect until January 1st. Landlords are getting ahead of that and giving 60-day notices now. Once those people are removed from their property, they can raise the rent to however much they want to. Or if this tenant was particularly problematic or they viewed them as particularly problematic, this is an easier way to do it now than after the law goes into effect. You also had a, a prominent landlord attorney in Los Angeles uh, yep. speak at a, at a meeting um, of like the landlord association here um, uh, in Southern California say, look, do this. <laughs> yeah. Hey, look, do this and not only do this, don't feel bad about it because the state legislators are forcing your hands by yep. by putting this by putting this out there. So um, and since then, I mean, there there were reports of at least a half dozen circumstances that we, we've been hearing from tenant advocates. The L.A. City Council is, is trying to put into place, um, uh, you know, a temporary freeze on evictions to help to keep this keep this from happening until the state law goes into effect Too another thing, too, which is in some ways a similar loophole. The law does include a look back for rent increases, right? So yep. the law, knowing that this could be could have been an issue, the law says um, whatever your rent was, tenant, on March in March of this year of 2019, once January 1st happens, that your rent has to be rolled back to that amount, that March amount, plus the allowable increase under the rent cap. Yeah. Right. So basically, like in LA, it'd be uh, you know your March 2019 rent plus eight eight a little more than eight percent. 
Now, of course, the law doesn't prevent any large rent increases that were to happen now in the interim. And so, you know, you could rent could go up 50 percent um, and you'd still be responsible for paying that in, say, November and December. Uh, while it would be ratcheted down potentially again back in January. But that could be another way to try to get a tenant out, even if you weren't going to give them an, an, an eviction notice. You could raise the rents to such a rate that folks could not pay. Yep. And so going back to the air of jubilation at this rent cap signing, and I think a lot of these tenants' rights groups were justified in feeling like, hey, we finally did this, you know? For sure. I was the person asking all the tenants' rights groups and David Chu, um, hey, uh, what about this loophole? It seems like people are being evicted now as a inadvertent consequence of this law. And could it have been prevented, which I think is the the key question. Assemblymember Chu's response was essentially, and I'm paraphrasing, it probably would have had to have been an urgency bill, which means a bill that takes immediate effect, which requires a two-thirds vote in the legislature, which would have been difficult to get. What I will say is that this was something that, in retrospect, I feel guilty about not pointing out because this loophole was there. I mean, just kind of obvious in these few months that landlords would probably act in this way. And so I don't think there was a ton of messaging around this, you know, immediately encouraging local governments to impose the type of things that L.A. City Council is entertaining right now. Right. It feels a little more reactionary that now we're hearing these reports and then now the tenants groups are going out and saying, please, please, please um, pass temporary protections to bridge us to when the law starts January 1st. Right. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think part of that is the significant uncertainty whether the law itself is going to pass. Yes. Um, You know, number one. Um, And number two, yeah, I mean, even in the urgency provision, I I mean, I don't know. It's just it's it's uh, well, we talked about how difficult it was to pass, let alone get a supermajority vote in both houses. um, Probably, uh, well, almost certainly unrealistic. I also talked to Anya Lawler at the Western Center for Law and Poverty and asked, like, okay, like, you know, what recourses are you guys trying to pursue? And she basically said, you know, we're exploring a bunch of different avenues, including possible legal action, although it was unclear how exactly that would work. And uh, again, urging local governments to enact these temporary measures. You're going to have a tough time convincing more conservative parts of the state to do that. Let's let's talk about the question, you, the one housing question Governor Gavin Newsom got in his press availability after the rent cap signing that you were able to ask. Yeah, so this was uh, for context. This is around the time that uh, PG&E yeah. utility was shutting shutting off hundreds of thousands of customers' um, power, right? And so the lion's share of the press availability, the crush of folks in Northern California, were asking about that. Uh, I was able to uh, get a housing question in, which was uh, essentially, um, are we done on rent caps and re- rent control for the next year or so? And I asked that because uh, listeners are probably aware if they go to supermarket that um, there are folks collecting signatures for another rent control initiative on the 2020 ballot, one that would be more restrictive in a variety of ways than what was passed at the state level. Uh, the backer of that, the AIDS Healthcare Foundation's uh, Michael Weinstein, was opposed to the rent cap bill, saying it didn't go far enough, and in fact said he, it might incentivize landlords to raise rents and evict people, sort of like what we've been seeing now, right? Yep. Um, and so um, uh, he also has said that he would pull his initiative back if there was a... Um, um, measure that he felt was sufficiently restrictive, right? Um, so I asked the governor, hey, uh, what do you think? And um, he sort of 
kind of punted a bit, um, didn't give a clear answer on what he what he sort of um, saw as the next steps here. Uh, but he did sort of point to, um, well, we do need to see how this thing kind of plays out. And that not a surprise for, for him to say something like that. We've gone over this before, but it's important for people to remember that Newsom very quietly opposed uh, yeah. the 2018 version of that initiative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one other note on that. Um, I did ask some other folks there um, at that event about about this issue, uh, including uh, Senator Bob Hertzberg uh, from from L.A., um, who was kind of a key deal maker on a lot of these sort of plans to take initiatives off the ballot and was involved in some of these yeah. conversations. And he said, yeah, I think we're done. Um, I think this rent cap rent control conversation is is over for next year. And uh, because we just did something big. And, and, and so um, while maybe the governor wasn't willing to go that far or uh, or others, I asked uh, the Senate uh, leader Tony Atkins the same thing, and she gave a similar answer to the governor. Um, but the fact that he was willing to say that, I think, does show at the very least um, an even bigger hill to climb uh, if uh, than we had this year on a, on a, on a, on any other renter measures. Yes, and to that point, Newsom made a point of crediting the California Apartment Association while, during the signing ceremony and thanking them for uh, being willing to compromise. For the rent cap bill, the Apartment Association, obviously not a fan of the 2020 initiative. So it, it is interesting. This is a good, a good segue, too. It's interesting you mentioned the, the Newsom thanking the Apartment Association because he did it the next day. Yeah. Uh, as well. Um, you know, there was a sort of the, a week of housing uh, or a couple days where he really um, uh, tried to promote the other things that that he uh, and the legislature had done on housing this year, uh, West Oakland, the first day, the next day, he went to both San Diego and Los Angeles. I was at the event in Los Angeles where he again um, thanked the apartment association for their effort on 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 the rent cap mm -hmm. or willing to or their willingness to compromise. Uh, but the primary focus of that day was on. Um, uh, casitas, ADUs, mm, yeah. uh, granny flats, in-law units, um, all these things that we call uh, these uh, these backyard houses. So there were four ADU bills that he signed. Tell us what the ADU bills do and what the ADU bills don't do. Yeah. So um, uh, listeners may know, really over the past four years, there's been a lot of effort at the state level to um, uh, incentivize or make it easier for these sorts of units to be built on, particularly in single family properties um, throughout the state. And so there was initial efforts in 2016 that passed, did things like limiting fees and parking requirements, dealing with rules on setbacks that sort of set state standards for what cities, you know, kind of had to allow. Uh, these new bills, these sort of quartet uh, primary ones, um, uh, or these four bills went even further. And so what you have now is um, now every uh, locality, single family area, um, has to allow for an 800 minimum 800 square foot uh, casita on the property, uh, plus the conversion of a garage, office, whatever existing place into a third living spot. So potentially sort of three quote unquote housing units on yeah. a um, on a plot of land. Right. Um, additionally, one of the other bills said um, homeowner associations in their covenants, if you try to block these things, you're no longer allowed to do that. So um, that's really trying to get a bit more granular into uh, allowing these things to, to get built. And already, um, I think, uh, you know, Los Angeles is kind of the predominant example that folks go to when they look at um, how popular these have been since the state laws came into effect. But, yep. uh, since beginning of 2017, when the, the, the first laws did, 2,000% uh, increase in permanent applications in the city of L.A. 
uh, which is incredible. Um, yes. So more than 13,000 uh, applications uh, for these throughout the city since 2017. And if you are measuring the success of housing legislation by how many units are actually being constructed, which is a very intuitive metric, um, by far the most successful part of the 2016 whatever housing bills were passed there, and then the 2017 housing package were these ADU bills. Yeah, I'd say from a pure numbers perspective, yeah. uh, the most significant stuff that's been done in the past four years, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and a lot of the reason why people put such hope in ADUs as one of the main solutions to the housing crisis. That being said, um, there was a lot of uh, buzz in the YIMBY world and in the uh, the opposite end of the spectrum in the livable California world that these bills had effectively ended single family zoning in California. One, is that true? Two, why haven't we paid enough attention uh, if that's the case? I mean, look, if you define single family zoning as like, like literally one house on a plot, I mean, now you got kind of um, more than that. So, okay, right? Um, but at the same time, I think when people think about, you know, um, uh, you, you know, you can't build an apartment complex now. You can't even build a one-story apartment complex now, right? That's not what these bills do, you know. And, yeah. and so they're not multi. I mean, they're not like traditional multifamily construction. They're none of these things. And so, um, yeah, I mean, you're allowing certainly allowing for more units of housing, even if they're, you know, not necessarily external, but in divisions. Right uh, of existing single-family homes than you would be able to do before, but it's not like all of a sudden you're going to see, um, you know, uh, fourplexes or uh, or uh, you know even duplexes um, on a lot of these lots that you weren't you weren't allowed to have them before. So what what is the difference then between a um, duplex like a duplex you might now see in Minneapolis as a result yeah. of of what they did versus um, a single-family home? now being able to put an ADU and maybe an ADU junior in the backyard. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I'm not, I, I don't want to, I mean, I'm not a Minneapolis expert, right? So I don't, okay. I don't know the te technicalities of their, of their issue, but, but I do think like the way we talk about this is very different. And I wrote a story on this and, and got into this, right. Um, you know, sort of very frontally, I think both in Minneapolis and the state of Oregon, there was a discussion about the future and utility of single family zoning, right. As part of their getting their kind of measures passed. And that didn't happen here. Um, you know, this was kind of a side door, back door effort, if you will, um, to to address that in, in a different way. And I think a part, a part of that, because, you know, when the, tr the state tries to go through the front door and do things like SB 50, which would have, um, you know, allowed for fourplexes uh, on single family lots, it was you know, in many corners seen as the end of the Cal California lifestyle, right? Or the end of a, of, of yeah. what, you know, you know, uh, a home, a backyard, a barbecue and a, and a garage. Right. Um, yeah. and so, um, I think that the, you know, that's not all the time. I think politics and rhetoric matter, but I do think on this issue, um, it does how you talk about it and how you conceive of it, um, I think is very important, um, in this sense, as much as what the ultimate, um, kind of outcome is. Uh, also signed in L.A. was Nancy Skinner, senator, Democratic senator from Berkeley, uh, SB 330, um, a bill that the moratorium on moratoriums bill, um, yes. a bill that tries to stop cities from downzoning and other behaviors um, that obstruct new housing. Um, we've talked about that bill at length. LeBron James was not there for that bill. Anything else you want to add about at SB 330? 
No, I, just a quick thing to go back to the the Casita stuff. Um, I I asked um, among many annoying questions I've asked the governor over the last two weeks. Uh, I said, hey, you know, you're touting these these new uh, new um, uh, backyard homes. He in fact toured one uh, in Cren the Crenshaw neighborhood before signing these bills. I said, you know, you got seven acres um, uh, in your house in Fair Oaks. You're gonna build one, uh, and he uh, chuckled um, and uh, did not say no, but really pretty much said no so um <laughs> no 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 additional casitas on the in the governor's uh property oh, sadly that's yeah. unfortunate yeah, with the, yeah. I, I wonder what he would charge for rent okay let's move to what he vetoed what was the most important bill that governor newsom vetoed uh senate bill five yep. um this was a measure that um uh, frankly, and I might have said this before, but I certainly believed it. It was surprised that it advanced as far as it did, um, given the governor's opposition, um, sort of stated opposition to creating a, a sort of redevelopment 2.0, uh, a program that would allow for uh, property sequestering some property taxes within cities and then a match from the state government to uh, uh, promote affordable housing and economic development. And the, this is something that affordable housing advocates in the cities themselves have lobbied for for a while. We've gone over this in previous podcasts, but um, with the dissolution of redevelopment, a reliable affordable housing funding source has yet to rematerialize at that size. The, the first thought I had w with SB5 being vetoed was, well, one, yeah, that's what I thought would happen. And then two, well, I wonder if there's a path forward marrying SB50 with, uh, with SB5. Um, well, what, what do you think I, of that I'd not idea? Be surprised at, yeah, I'd not be surprised at all to see something like that. In fact, he hinted in the veto message that, um, you know, he wants to see um, more housing. The governor wants to see more housing uh, built and incentivize more housing to get built at all income levels. Right. He used a phrase like that, certainly including he certainly included the idea of market rate housing in that veto message. And also something we haven't really touched on um, as part of his, com his comments, both the day of the rent cap signing and the next day in L.A., um, you know, talked about was being something being friendly towards uh, having SB 50 or something like that uh, come back and get done uh, next year. He was certainly um, uh, giving people plenty of tea leaves to sort through yes. in his uh, in his comments in that in that regard. Let's talk about local control just real briefly. It seems like, you know, as you kind of referenced earlier, the, the one of the fundamental themes of this podcast um, is state versus local control. Why are we exclusively devoting an episode to the voices of local control? Well, uh, until very recently, uh, both of us were in Sacramento uh, and hearing uh, the sort of the view of the world from there, you know, yeah. um, and, and that's uh, generally what. And, you know, there has been a longstanding deference um, a, uh, in the state to having locals uh, control uh, most uh, most of the sort of means of uh, of uh, of development controls in the state, right? Um, and so um, I think, given those dynamics, uh, a lot of the focus for us uh, have been on what the state is doing about that and in and, and efforts to try to change that dynamic. Uh, but we want to make sure that we have. Uh, this perspective um, yep. uh, of uh, individual communities and community members um, in our uh, coverage as much as possible. As well as the local elected officials who um, will actually either be implementing or at least hearing from their constituents about the results of some of these state policies that have been enacted and proposed. All right. Well, that is um, our discussion of why we're doing an episode on local control. Let's hear from some voices of local control. 
We are here with Susan Kirch. She's the founder and former president of Livable California. Uh, Susan, thank you so much for being with us. You're welcome. Thanks for the invitation. Susan, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about yourself, um, who you are, and how you got interested in, uh, in, in, in housing issues in the state. So um, I'm a 40-year resident of Mill Valley. Um, I live in Marin. I've been here for the 40 years. I've raised my two kids here. Um, And, you know, in a backyard that enabled us to play croquet and have slip and slide and um, picnics and kids over and and close to a park. So in many ways, this is really, you know, the kind of place that I know many people dream of and the reason many people are concerned because this American dream is feeling more out of reach for other people. And the way I got involved in housing things is that, you know, at the end of my street, which is a a main street getting into downtown Mill Valley, and one of the most congested streets, because there are only two roads in and out of Mill Valley, there was a proposal to put 20 units on this corner intersection that was already congested and that were going to tower 70 or 80 feet, you know, up the hillside of this corner. And so there were just a lot of things about this that were issues in terms of, you know, primarily the congestion issue for that corner, which translates into being a safety issue for emergency vehicles to be able to get in and out. You know, it's close to a school, so there were issues of school crossings. So that was the thing that prompted me to really get started and understand the value of talking to a few neighbors to say, come on, let's have coffee and talk about this issue that we're facing. And so I started very much at that kind of in my neighborhood, this is concerning me, what do you think about it? And finding out that that conversation grew to be like 350 people at City Hall talking about the wishes of the community for our community's safety and well-being. What what happened to that apartment building? Were you guys the, able to block it? The hillside is still an open hillside. So, Susan, um, people, I think, when they're listening to this, are going to hear that story of, of you getting involved in this sort of issue and hear it as uh, almost, you know, uh, precisely a, a not-in-my-backyard sort of response. I mean, this is very close to your backyard, right? Um, you know, how do you sort of think about or respond to folks who would say, well, um, this is just someone who didn't want um, more housing, uh, you know, near them? What, what, you know, how do you, how would you respond to that? And what is sort of your alternative perspective to, to someone Actually, who would criticize you for that purpose? Who said, if this project would have been entirely affordable housing, we would have gotten behind it. And we, I think we see these kinds of misconstruing what's happening within communities by taking this this what glossy kind of picture of we need more housing and it's a crisis and kind of a chicken little the sky is falling the sky is falling kind of mantra and and that many of us are really eager to see that there would be more ways to find how to build enough housing to meet the affordability need but not the luxury need which is so much more often what these what, what plans have been doing. I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, just linking to another recent experience and the way in which I think the educational process is working, this year the San Francisco MIME Troupe, you know, which has been around for, what, 50 years or so, their play was a play called Treasure Island. And the whole play is about the kind of bribery and corruption and 
uh, and manipulation of people's longing to have greater equity within our communities. But in, in this play, Treasure Island, it's like it goes into then not only are is there people being bought off to be able to get the best deal for the developers or the, the housing investors, but also the way in San Francisco, the idea was to build affordable housing out at Hunter's Point, a known toxic site. That's, that's got to so, be the first mime reference for the podcast. <laughs> All right. That's, uh, we, we, we're breaking fan. new ground, yes. Miming, <laughs> miming not a medium friendly to podcasts. So unfortunately, oh, I don't think gosh. we can invite the mime troupe. I'm sorry, I don't remember the name of the key actor right now. But even after the play was over, you know, and he came out to be able to make an appeal to support the mime troupe. You know, he just went on. He was so articulate and so knowledgeable about the way in which we are being misled. And, did you know, and to go back to, to the you, not in my backyard, he... <laughs> how often that is being mischaracterized and the power that's behind the mischaracterization, mis- not surprising when you think that the Yimbis are the funnel for millions of dollars to be able to gain support for businesses, both offloading the kinds of expenses that they should be incurring because of their success as businesses, but offloading the responsibility for housing and infrastructure. So I I want to talk a little bit about uh, affordable housing, which it it sounds like you very much support. Uh, Marin County does not have the best track record in terms of building affordable housing. The federal government had to come and kind of take over your planning department a little bit to force uh, affordable housing to at least be planned for. I'm wondering um, why you think uh, Marin County has kind of a spotty record when it comes to affordable housing. Well, let me start out by telling the story of a conversation with a realtor friend of mine that I had the other day who was saying, like, he just sold a property. I think it was like a a $6 million property. And his point was that in Marin County, that is affordable, probably even like 8 and $10 million. Those are affordable complexes, housing situations for someone. And that we get caught in the idea of the question of affordability, knowing that whatever is out there selling at a certain level is affordable for somebody. But in Marin, and to get to maybe more the heart of your question, and and as is true in so much of the Bay Area, we have a jewel of a of a, an environment that we live in. The beauty of this area is so extraordinary, not just in Marin, but in many of the areas throughout, you know, Santa Clara and San Mateo and San Francisco and the East Bay. All of our areas have incredible beauty. And that we, and so, so it's expensive. You know, it's the idea of the beautiful work of art. You pay a lot for it. And that we can be living in this incredible area of beauty you know, it is, seems a bit like we have the goose that's ga- laying the golden egg and people want to kill off the goose to, to build more and higher and block the beauty that currently exists for so many people. 
So, you know, I've talked to affordable housing developers who say, you know, Marin is the toughest place in the in the state to build. Um, you know, Matt referenced the, the you know, federal government coming in. You know, one way to deal with high land costs, which I, I, I presume you're referring to, is to allow for more homes uh, more or, you know, on certain plots of on certain plots of land. Um, there have been a number of proposals to have, you know, affordable buildings that have been turned away. Um so, you know, what, you know, there are a lot of places that are expensive in, in, in California yep. and they are do find a way to, to have some affordable building, you know, at a higher rate than 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 Marin does. You know, wh- it, why? I mean, is there a way? So if 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 the Marin residents will only support or affordable housing, but affordable housing, as you're saying, is somewhat infeasible. Um, how do you square that square that circle? Well, I, maybe if we take the example of looking at, at how or where people, you know, can most often dine, and let's say, and this is a special occasion, and for some of us, the best we could ever do if we want a special time out to go dining is we're going to be dining in, you know, at Denny's, let's say. And that's the best we're ever going to do until there are some, are some other kinds of fundamental changes that are made, not in terms of greater, you know, of, of densifying everything to try to make it all equal in an, in an unappealing kind of way. You know, the, the issue that we're facing that far too often I think gets lost in this idea of a housing crisis because there's a lot of money for people to make out of a housing crisis is that we're not looking at wage inequity or we're not looking at the incredible consolidation of wealth that is going on in this community to do is to spend their time and their resources to be getting to the heart of some of these problems, which would be the consolidation of wealth that's going on, the wage inequities that are existing here, the ways in which successful businesses are creating huge profits and offloading their expenses to communities. So uh, Marin County, fairly white place, um, not one of the most diverse places in California. What would you say to those who argue, well, the reason Marin County doesn't want affordable housing Um, and specifically housing subsidized for lower-income residents is related to uh, the fact that maybe they don't want people of color living there. Well, see, I think, I mean, people often bring that up, saying, you know, that it's discriminatory in that kind of negative way. I think we, the, the common sense point of view is that we all live and work and we dine, you know, I don't think I quite finished that story about where we dine, whether it's a Denny's or whether it's, you know, the, the great laundry. <laughs> yeah, right. So, but, but we, we live and operate within the conditions that we can operate in. And so, and to say that we don't want more affordable housing in Marin, if the funding were, were available if we had redevelopment agencies or if there were government funding that was supporting this or if there were if there was thoughtfulness to go into how we solve this problem maybe with more thinking outside the box and more listening to each other instead of the heavy-handedness of legislators you know working doing the bidding of the big companies that are right here in our backyard so i want to transition a little bit um you know i when i've talked to folks who are advocating for um you know more building or more um state control over um 
sort of housing decisions, one thing that they've often told me is that you will have neighbor neighbors uh, come out to a city council meeting or a planning commission meeting to protest a particular building uh, near them, but they're, they're not going to get in a plane and fly to Sacramento to protest a, a law. Um, and so I was fascinated by um, a sort of the quickness with which the organization uh, that you started, Livable California, was able to engage and coordinate folks from all over the state to take a position on uh, some of these state potential state bills. So could you talk a little bit about, um, A, how your organization uh, was formed, and B, how you were able to connect with some like-minded folks from different parts of California? Uh-huh. Um, well, thank you for the compliments for what Livable California has been able to do, and I think you know there'll continue to be great things for all the people who've been working within Livable California. Um, you know, we started—I mean, not too different from the living room conversation that I described that first got me started here in Mill Valley. Um, Senator Scott Weiner was speaking in San Francisco at the Terraval Police Station. You know, I decided to go to hear him at that at that town hall meeting, and then called a few people who I'd met and knew to say afterwards, like if there's an appetite for people getting together to talk about how could we accumulate more um, in information and authority to be able to be more powerful in, in as we come up against these kinds of massive legislation bills. So actually, I remember it was February 18th of 2018 that we first met, and we started out then having meetings twice a month at the Terravel police station, inviting elected officials and community leaders and people in other kinds of, of groups to come and meet with us. But one of the things is that we also became a, 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 a container from which people could imagine that they could run for city positions, for, for city council positions. So we had a number of people who, you know, who campaigned then on slow growth or moderate growth or realistic growth who ended up being elected, you know, in city council races, you know, you'll love this. Of course, Cupertino was one of those places, and then Pleasanton, and, you know, a candidate who ran in Arinda. SP50 will be back next year. Um, I'm wondering, what's the game plan to defeat SB50 next year? Well, uh, you know, I... I um, let's see, I'm, I'm hesitating going, that sounds like a spy kind of question, but of course I know you're not needing it to be a spy <laughs> question. Uh, um, I, I anticipate that we will continue to do more of the same and just continuing with other activities that were a part of Livable California's success that I think will continue to be embraced and probably expanded will be, you know, the, the strong link with with L.A. and San Diego and some of the other communities that are doing this work as well. So I, I want to ask a little bit more about the connection that your group uh, was able to make in and the ties in Southern California, you know, L.A. area and and San Diego. You know, again, very quickly, I mean, you referenced the meeting you had in Palo Alto. I believe the mayor of Redondo Beach, um, a beach community here in Southern California, was at that meeting. So what yes. specifically happened where, you know, that kind of uniting between Northern California and Southern California was able to occur so quickly? Was it just the fact that there was a kind of a what you considered a common threat in SB 50 or, or what, what exactly was it? 
Well, I think it's I think it is broader than Senate Bill 50. I think I mean that is clearly a, a kind of lightning rod, and we felt really pleased that we were able to get it shelved. You know, it started out we were just having phone calls. There were a bunch of us that would do a weekly call, San Francisco, L.A., and you know more people started jumping on, and then that led to working more closely when we were planning a lobbying trip to Sacramento that some representatives from the Coalition to Preserve L.A. came and joined us because we wanted to convey that this was not just a San Francisco you know, concern, not just specialized here in the Bay Area, but that it was a concern that was tying people together throughout the state. I want you to define something for me, this nebulous concept of community character. What, what does that actually mean to you? Oh, let's see. Well, that's a great question, community character. I don't know. I guess I think of it as being kind of like, the, like a person, having a personality. And so just to think of my own community character here for Mill Valley, which is charming. We just finished like what the 40th anniversary of the Mill Valley Film Festival. So the fact that that would be a part of what happens here with beautiful, you know, with, with just incredible films coming from all over the world and being a, an attractive a place that attracts the creativity of people from all over the world to come here, that's a part of the community character. You know, the fact that uh, that there are good schools and that people work very, very hard to work and support good schools. So all of those are, you know, if you walk through the neighborhoods, just that there are yards and fences and gateways and flowers and trees that are showing a kind of, um, you know, love and appreciation for that intermingling between nature and um, and and beautiful construction and caring and, and neighborliness. And this is in contrast to the big box apartment buildings that we see going up in so many places, really without much of a sense of aesthetics or beauty or inviting quality. Um, and I think that's, I, a, you know, Emeryville is often held up as the example of not wanting to look like Emeryville. No offense to anybody in Emeryville, but... <laughs> I, I guess that's, um, I think, Part of the struggle for people who kind of oppose your point of view have, which is how does dense housing threaten the community Those character things, right? that you described? Yeah. Like, how does dense housing mean you're not going to have a film festival? How does denser housing mean the quality of your schools is going to go down? Well, I, I think that the great wisdom of zoning as it has existed for many, many years is that communities made plans for what would be residential, what would be commercial, what would be industrial, what would be open, and worked with the idea of categories for different kinds of functions. And I think the, the downside, the thing that makes no sense to many of us, is that suddenly now we want you know, the high density, we want to destroy views or backyards or parking, uh, you know, just that there's so many things that are looking to be destroyed. And I think we need to just ask who is going to benefit from that. Because even if, even if Mill Valley suddenly has, like, if, if that Senate Bill 50 could bring in, like, what, eight-story buildings? Maybe it's changed since I last looked at the, looked at the bill. But, let's, I mean, let's say even four-story buildings is out of character for this community. I think we really we need to maintain that idea of choice that people should have choices about where they live based on their income, which means that if the income inequity is a problem, that's what our legislators should be focusing on, not 
thinking that building more and denser will will improve the economic well-being of people. So, but on the income inequity question, I mean, you have you know folks in San Francisco, say tech engineers making six figures who can't afford more than um, you know one bedrooms. Um, uh, you know, how do you respond? I mean, to what extent can you? make that so i mean how much more would they need to make to to how do you fix that problem or they would make what double triple to be able to afford more than than that well, i mean you know home prices throughout the bay area are are, are over a million um I in almost think, almost everywhere right the issue here i think is the way in which more and more wealth is going into the hands of fewer and fewer people and that that's a part of what silicon valley is really contributing to but Taking away local control to try to solve those problems is the wrong direction to go. Um, I actually want to get back real quickly to your Denny's metaphor because I eat at Denny's, and <laughs> and I, I I just want to be sure. It's not I, bad, I, huh? especially I, moons over my hammy. Right? I yes, I'm uh, I'm more of a scramble guy. Um, I see. Yes, but but what were you what were you trying to say with the with the Denny's versus the more expensive? restaurant and how that's an analogy for housing in Marin County? Well, I'll just recall as a college student and as someone who put myself through college because there were no funds from my family that would allow that. So I was a self-funded college student. And if it was a special occasion, I mean, we might go to Denny's. You know, now I can set my sights higher in terms of a, a, a celebration kind of time. You know, but but in either case, I was having to make choices within the discernible or discretionary income that I had for for meals for meals out. And so I think I mean this idea that suddenly we're going to have something of everything being homogenized in terms of economic capacity is just not going to happen especially if we're not tending to what kind of educational systems do we need to bring in to enable people to be trained in the skills that are natural to them that they want to pursue and that meet the needs of the job of the of the jobs that are being created I, you know, I think a lot of people are going to hear that and hear you know basically if you can't afford marin county you can't afford marin county which i get i get that argument i think part of the objection to that school of thought though is housing is not like a restaurant right um, especially if you're lower income so because you guys have those great schools and great parks and great amenities, there's an argument to build that type of housing and allow those people access to those. That's not a restaurant, right? Well, but you can't build it here and have it be affordable. That is the reality. You can't do or I mean, if, if, you can't do that. Why? You can build it. You, you well, mean, you mean a market rate. You mean a market rate place. Well, but it's always going to come back to who's paying for it. Sorry, you're also saying at the same time that low-income developers, uh, nonprofit developers, can't build their housing either because the land costs are too high, right? It's too expensive for them. Well, right. So that is something that could be a problem that some people could put their heads together and figure out how, what's a solution to that. That would be a tailor-made solution. And, and I bet there are people who would be happy to build something of a – of, of housing. I mean, for here in Marin, for example, we've got Northgate Mall that is, you know, has been, is 
I don't know if it's totally abandoned, but like instead of looking and bringing in people who might through some, some, you know, meetings to understand what the possibilities are, that that might become a place where there could be a whole lot of housing in a centralized location. But instead, like the proposal that's moving forward is for Costco to come in. So I don't know, it just makes some of us go, really, do we need another Costco? And Sorry, I'm, I, I was only giggling because after Denny's, we would go to Costco. So that you're just you're literally <laughs> describing my day. Right. Yeah. Um, Liam, you got any more questions? No, I, th- I think uh, I think we covered it. Susan, anything else you want to leave our vast and influential audience with? Oh, my gosh. We've covered a lot of territory. <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> so, I mean, I hope I hope we all it, – it's really – I like the idea that I could share the points of view. You'll continue to call in other people who will share this point of view so that we're not just overwhelmed with that point of view that says it's a crisis and we have to do something. We are here with Juan Garza. He's the mayor pro tem of the city of Bellflower in Los Angeles County, and he's also an official with the League of California Cities. Juan, thanks so much. Thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. So, for why don't we start? Why don't you tell us a little bit about Bellflower for those who are unfamiliar with it? So, Bellflower is a uh, southeast LA County city. Uh, the closest big city to us is Long Beach. We're maybe around uh, five miles away from the beach, and uh, 80,000 residents. Uh, very diverse in everything, not only racial, but uh, fiscal and uh, just the way of life. And uh, very, very proud to be uh, from our city. Um, We actually asked this question earlier of our previous guest, who is from Marin County up in Northern California. Um, When we talk about state versus local control, um, this kind of nebulous concept of uh, neighborhood character and community character comes up. I'm wondering if you could define that for me. What does neighborhood character mean to you? Neighborhood character is local, um, first and foremost. Uh, even in my city, uh, my city is not in any way uh, the same in every single corner. Uh, we have distinct neighborhoods even just within my city. So multiply that times the whole state, and you have a, a state that's very diverse, right? And with that comes a variety of opinions and perspectives and issues, and, and which makes, I think, our state such a, a leader in so many things, right, is the fact that we have so many different sets of circumstances and opinions, and I think it, it allows for the creation of innovation in so many ways, including governance. So um, so do you think that any state efforts, as there have been in recent years, to um, perhaps put some guide, more guidelines down and restrictions on what local governments can do with respect to development, do you think that that uh, affects or would affect uh, the neighborhood character of Bellflower? Well, it depends. Um, I know that some of the recent uh, laws that were signed by the governor um, over uh, the last couple of sessions with regards to ADUs, are, uh, we're starting to see the effect of those within the distinct characters within in our community, in my community, in Bellflower, and uh, we're reacting to them, right? We're, we're trying to accommodate what the law states, uh, and at the same time trying to balance that with the, with the desire of the residents to maintain that the, the quality of life, right, to maintain that unique character that makes each one of our neighborhoods distinct and, and home for them. And so we're trying to balance that and ensure that their, that their way of life, uh, that their community psychology isn't drastically affected. And so we're, we are at the forefront of that. Uh, I, I tell people we're at the tip of the spear in, in implementing that. And so uh, it's one of those uh, social uh, innovations that I think we're, we're, it's still in flux and 
and I think time will tell whether they're successful or not. Talk, talk to us a little bit more about that. What challenges have state laws regarding accessory dwelling units or granny flats or in-law units? Casita is uh, also, also a term for that. <laughs> Do you like the term <laughs> casita? Because I, I despise it. I'm asking you, Juan. I, I tend to go with uh, ADUs. Yeah, right? <laughs> yeah, because you're a rational human being. I, yeah, I, yeah I, I, I'll let you say that now myself, but... Uh, yes, we, we are. Uh, so one of the. So um, I want to be very clear here. What are the challenges that are confronting the city specifically? Yeah. And then what are the challenges that homeowners are coming to you with? So what homeowners are coming to me with are, first of all, there's to many of them, there's a, a bit of excitement in the sense that they are seen as, as an economic opportunity. Um, and so that is there and that's absolutely real. But the other aspect that I'm hearing from my residents is with regard to the, uh, the unexpected impacts. Uh, an example would be parking. Uh, the neighborhoods, I can only speak for, for my city, but I've also seen this yeah. in the Southeast LA County region where I grew up, which is a very dense communities. My city is very dense. And uh, we're actually, our region is uh, has the same density level as the city of New York does, just to give you an example. So when you have an already dense environment and you're coming up with these, these laws that are well-intended, but when we don't think of them uh, comprehensively, I think we have these unintended consequences. In our case, uh, parking's an issue. We already had a parking issue before, as people are able to better afford cars, right? And so now you're having uh, more cars that are being uh, forced onto a, a dense and small neighborhood. And so we're having to come up with, with innovative ways to address that, right, where if it's whether if it's uh, creating par per, uh, parking permit districts or if it's having uh, neighbors themselves uh, try to create space amongst each other just to accommodate the volume of vehicles that, again, these neighborhoods were not designed originally to be able to, to, to have. And so that, that, for me as a policymaker, and I could say that for, for my colleagues on the council, that is a very real concern in terms of how do we balance the desire, right, and the greater need that we all know that we need housing, but at the same time, and trying to make that fit within a model that it was not designed for that. And so it's, it's something that at the state level uh, is not being addressed, right? Laws came down. We have to implement them now. And yeah. so we're being left with implementing them. Uh, and so yeah, that's, that's, that's a very real life for me as a council member in my city. So, uh, and we can get back to funding, but I, you did touch on something, and, and we did see um, a op-ed that you put out when it comes to SB 50. That was the bill that would have increased density um, around transit in single-family areas. And the first line of that is, local officials understand the need to address California's housing affordability crisis through increased supply. Yeah. Um, and you referenced the need for more supply. And I'm curious, from your perspective, where should that new supply go? So I... Uh... I should say that I've actually had uh, personal conversations with Senator Weiner. Uh, we maintain a line of communication at this point. Um, we are, I can say that our LA County Division for League uh, is actively looking at, at solutions with the Senator, uh, or hopefully we can work with him to be able to, uh, to make SB 50 a measure that, that, uh, that is a win-win, right? Where in the sense that, that his, uh, his vision and his intent is, is come to fruition, but at the same time being able to be balanced with the, with the local unique needs that, as we talked about before, exist. So, um, so we, we are working with him on that. Uh, we, I think in line with, with his, the original measure, I think we think that 
there's areas of opportunity that exist within uh, commercial corridors for this. Uh, you know, I, so but in terms of the latest iteration of the bill, where now you're starting to infringe upon single-family residential neighborhoods, which, for all intents and purposes, don't exist anymore, right? With the advent of ADUs, uh, but when you're starting to encroach upon that, um, and again, neighborhoods that really weren't designed to handle that type of density, or infrastructure as well, which I've expressed to the senator, you start getting into again these unintended effects that that will materialize from this. So. Uh, we, we're working with him. Um, I've actually commissioned a, a, a working group within our division board to explore this comprehensively, the SB 50 bill. Um, we're almost done with our, with our, um, with our work. But as we have, uh, in a surgical manner, gone through this bill and seen uh, the elements that it has, you know, we see the good elements that it does have. You know, there are some really uh, innovative, uh, out-of-the-box thinking that, that he has put into there, and, and we commend him for that. But we also note that there's, you know, the narrative with SB 50 is that it'll help address the housing crunch that, that exists in our city, in our, in our state, in our cities. But the one thing that we don't see in the bill is any element of affordability. So um, requirements on affordability. So. In affordable housing, so uh, we, we think there's we think that this bill can be improved so that it could be uh, a solution not only for market rate housing but also for affordable housing to be able to help those those people that are in my city that are lower income that that need a place to to live and, and to be able to still uh, enjoy the the successes that our region and our city is undertaking so um, yeah in terms of to answer your question the, I think we think commercial corridors are an opportunity, but mm. uh, that that's a, at a macro level right uh, yeah. there's the, the devil's in the details, mm. and so that's what we're uh, we're working on the bill on so so let me ask what what is it about single family neighborhoods and single family single family neighborhoods let's say that that you feel is important that should be protected I wouldn't say that it's to be protected. Um, yeah. I would say that, that a homeowner would tell you that, uh, that the fact that they, this is potentially representative of the single largest investment in their life, right, and the source of income uh, in the long term once they become aged, right, that's a, a big, um, that's a big argument that they can make. I think for me, it's not necessarily that. Um, I think for me, it's more so the fact that that these neighborhoods that are single-family residential were not designed for this level of density. And, what, and I've expressed this to the senator, so one element would be the infrastructure, right? When these neighborhoods are designed, when you have single-family residential neighborhoods that are designed, they, they know how many homes are going to go in there. They, they, they plan for them. And when I say plan, I mean they, they have a certain uh, size of, of water mains that are that are that are in the streets, right, to be able to feed the needs of, of the local constituents mm. uh, and multiply that times the sewer, times gas lines, times electrical. And you have all this infrastructure that was commissioned to be able uh, to subsist, to, to support this level of use. And uh, when you're densifying that, you're talking about now about having to tear all that up and start from scratch because if you start putting multifamily in each one of those parcels, uh, the, the amount of demand that you put on that infrastructure is immense. And I've seen plenty, just as an example, of water mains that have broken and burst because of the increased demand that have been placed on those lines. So um, that's something that, that I've expressed to the senator um, that he has acknowledged exists. 
And the question is, if we do this, who's going to pay for that? Because at the end of the cities, we don't have that money, right? And so is the developer going to pay for that? Um, is the state, considering the amount of, of surplus the state has, will the state step up and actually um, support the increase in housing and support uh, for this infrastructure? So if you do that, now you're talking about miles and thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of infrastructure that would have to be uh, uh, implemented to support this desire, this aspirational desire of having multifamily housing and single-family residential homes. So um, it's not an easy problem. I, so, I, I think that's actually a really important point that I think is inadvertently de-emphasized, at least in my reporting, um, especially when we talk about things like impact fees, yeah. which are often framed in terms of, well, look at some really bad actor cities yeah. um, that basically put impact fees there to deter housing. But that's not always the case. The impact fees, the concept of an impact fee is there often for a reason, which is to pay for services. Could you give us an example of like how much an additional, an ADU, or how much an additional multifamily building, what, what that is going to cost in terms of additional infrastructure? I, it, you know, there's so many variables that come with yeah. that, and it probably sounds like a cop-out, but it's not, yeah, I'm, you know, you'd have to figure out. Has there been a recent example you can? No, I, and I don't okay. think anybody, frankly, has explored this, and so this is one of those uh, dangerous, slippery slopes of, of an unfunded mandate, right, that uh, we don't know. We don't know the answer to that, but much like ADUs, right, where, where these aspirational laws are, are created and implemented, and now after the fact we're having to come up with solutions at the local level, this is a very real scenario that could evolve from this. And so as a city, as a, as a, again, as a local representative, this is a very a real concern for me, and I could say that every single local official would have would express the same concern as well. So I I, I want to ask, uh, changing gears a little bit, uh, but still on the same topic of, of funding uh, um, for infrastructure and other things. Um, there's a sort of long-standing belief that because of the property tax restrictions that are involved in Proposition 13 or in, were inaugurated by Proposition 13, that cities um, are have incentives to support commercial development or hotel development uh, uh, more than how housing development because they get m more tax revenue from that. Have, have you found that in your experience to be the case? Uh, I would say yes. I think that is the case. I think uh, organically, because of the limitations of Prop 13, you know, you have this, uh, this complete change in, 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 uh, in desires, right, of, of, okay, so if we can't generate revenue to satisfy or to meet the needs of our residents for, for you know, the, the services that we provide at the local level, then what other sources can we, uh, can we work with and obtain or generate to be able to support that way of life that our resident expects of us as local officials? And so naturally, when, when we have, uh, as an example of, of, a, of a transit-oriented tax or, or a sales tax, those are natural revenue sources that we still have the ability to be able to, to tap into to, to create that additional revenue. So I think, um, frankly, I, I don't think anybody can fault us as cities of, of doing that. I think it's, it's, it was probably an unintended consequence of Prop 13, but that's what it's evolved into. I don't really gain much from actually creating the stock of housing by itself. Right, so I've found an innovative way of being able to support the economic development, which is self taxes, which I can tap into. But, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But yeah, the, so I wouldn't say that all of us oppose it. I think it's really more on incentives, and the incentives 
exists. And that's one of the things that I'm going to be proposing to the senator as part of the recipe 50 is, is maybe part of the carrot for cities would be to tap into the uh, taxing, you know, implement um, increment increment yeah. financing, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Tools like uh, like Korea's and the IFDs. Uh, that if we were able to be able to work uh, could lead to cities being motivated to increase that stock of housing organically and naturally without uh, you know being uh, being resisted so in other words marrying um, I know you didn't say redevelopment but marrying some of the similar aspects of redevelopment that allow cities to retain more revenue um, with some of the provisions of SB50. Correct. And one of the things that I, and I'll go back to SB5, one of the elements that I really liked about SB5 is that the, the measures that it had in there, the control measures, I thought were, were on target, right? And so there's nothing to prevent that from happening, let's say, with a vehicle like SB50, and maybe started at a small scale um, with, with, with the transit lines. You know, we can have pilot projects. You know, my city could be one of them to see how it all work out and flesh out before we implement it statewide. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, until then, I think, again, organically, um, there's uh, unfortunately not much of a, a, a source of revenue that cities could uh, generate from this to be able to support that increase in cost that we're going to undertake by, by having a greater stock of housing in our city. So as, as you probably know, um, the state housing department um, recently finalized or semi-finalized the basically new housing quota number that uh, Southern California is going to have to produce over the next eight years. Correct. So it's a really, really big number, 1.3 million units. Yes. I'm curious whether you think that is the right scale and how your city is planning to react to it. Uh, it's uh, So we just received the number, uh, or, or my city's receiving the number. Um, it's, it's, it is high. And your so, city got a specific number. No, the the number the, the division the overall uh, number. Uh, the overall number has come out, but the division to each individual community has not been decided yeah. yet. Cor yeah. From what I gather, I think the formula is there. Somebody told, told it to me in, uh, over lunch, but um, yeah. yes, we we received the 1.3 million uh, the edict. It, it's a very highly aspirational number again, right? It's a formula that was developed, and uh, now the very real issue is how do we get there, right? And, yeah. and, and incentives to create that. Uh, I would remind everyone that cities don't build housing, right? We don't create housing. Uh, we, we have limitations with us in terms of us being able to uh, have appropriate zoning that we can develop to support that. But at the end of the day, we don't construct it, we don't build it, and, uh, but we're being made responsible for it. So when you have a, a number that high as 1.3, uh, it's good. Um, I see the intent. I respect it. But uh, again, it's the devil's in the details, and uh, I'm not sure how we're going to get there. Uh, Liam, do you have any more questions? Uh, I, I don't. Juan, is there anything that you want to make sure that our very vast and significant and important audience um, knows about your city or about a local perspective on housing issues? You know, I'll go back to, again, the, the term of local control. And uh, I know that that tends to have a, a different connotation to everyone that, that hears it, but I would just, uh, I would just respectfully just remind all of us that, that at the end of the day, as as local officials, um, you know, we represent the the will of the local voter, right? I, I don't think it's by accident that that uh, local elected officials have higher ratings of of satisfaction from voters. Um, it's because we're local. We're here. We're, we're we feel and we're very acute to the pulse of what the local residents want. And so, 
when we talk about local control, it's not, in my case, five council members that are trying to control things. It really is us representing the will of, in my case, 80,000 residents, and you multiply that times X amount of cities throughout the state, and you have a very sizable amount of people that are very much um, uh, telling their local electors and representatives how they want their, their local communities to look. And so I think, uh, I think over the course of, of here over the next couple of months, you know, I think that's a conversation that I, I would hope that we would have um, amongst us as local electeds and state electeds to, to remind all of us, right, that, that we do represent the will of the local residents and, two, that there is, is an opportunity for a win-win. You know, I think with communication and dialogue and coming up with innovative solutions, the, the opportunity is there. It's just a matter of us sitting down and, and then putting eagles aside and, and, and having a frank, trustful conversation and, and going from there. And it may sound, you know, uh, highly aspirational on my end, but I, it's been very successful for me, and I, I have all hope that we can get there. And so in that vein, that's the way we're approaching SU50 and all other uh, challenges that we face as local officials. So. All right. Well, thank you so much, Juan, for joining us today. All right. Thank you for the opportunity again. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin. You can find me on Twitter at mlevinreports. Uh, I'm Liam Dillon. My Twitter handle is at Dillon Liam. And uh, particularly if you're in Southern California, we hope to see you uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, please take some time to rate and review the podcast. And yeah, uh, hope to see you guys soon.